0: Welcome to the Boston College Magazine podcast. I'm John Wolfson, editor of the magazine, and I'm joined as always by our podcast producer, Paul Dagnello. Today, we're joined by Dr. Charles Granson, who is Chief Equity and Strategy Officer for the Boston Public Schools. Granson graduated from BC in 2005 with a history degree and a minor in Black Studies, and then went on to earn his master's and PhD in education from the Lynch School. Welcome to the podcast, Charles.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here today.
0: So your background includes a number of traditional public school leadership roles, but tell us what it means to be a chief equity and strategy officer in a really big school system like Boston. What is that job?
1: It came about uh, in the um, fall of 2019 um, where um, our new superintendent, Dr. Brenda Caselius at the time I was the chief academic officer for the district, right. um, and she really um, saw a need for um, a way to make sure that we were um, really focusing on district strategy and really making sure that we, um, are, we're gathering feedback um, from the larger community um, to have uh, and have their feedback uh, impact um, on the overall work in the district. Um, I think in our early days in the district, uh, she heard um, loud and clear from the community um, that they didn't feel that their voice was heard in terms of the work um, that the district was doing um, and in terms of how that translated uh, in, in, in schools. Um, And so she created this role um, and we we decided to look at how do we put together um, a strategic plan for the district and have it be the roadmap um, to really help us meet our goals and to help us um, meet the needs and desires of the uh, larger uh, BPS community. Um, And then how do we center that work um, uh, in uh, our work around equity and closing opportunity and achievement gaps uh, in the district? Um, and so my role as a chief equity and strategy officer is to, to keep our district with the laser like focus um, on implementing our strategic plan, holding ourselves accountable to implementing our strategic plan um, and making sure that we're keeping equity at the center of all of our, our decisions and actions um, as we move forward with that, with that five-year plan.
0: Now, Charles, uh, when we say equity, just help us understand what specifically are we talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, when you look at the history of our country, um, and not everyone started out on an equal footing. Not everyone mm-hmm. comes uh, to this space on equal footing. Throughout history, have been barriers and roadblocks uh, to success a um, uh, Black, Latin, Latinx, and Asian American um, uh, communities. So when you look at uh, the inequity, it is uh, you know oftentimes um, how those communities um, uh, are um, experiencing. Um, uh, uh, a num- across a number of different areas in our society, um, receiving less than and having less uh, access. You know, I think one of the examples is um, uh, there's uh, been reports done recently that show that just a three mile drive from Back Bay to, to Roxbury, um, you see a shift in the data um, upwards of a 30 year life expectancy difference. Um, and so Boston is a small place. Uh, it's a large place and a dynamic city, but it's, you know, three miles is not that long. Right. And, and just within that um, short um, area, you see that. I mean, there was an organization called The Color of Wealth. Um, I'm sorry, there was a report called The Color of Wealth that highlighted um, that there is um, disparities across uh, uh, medium high household wealth Um, $8 uh, for um, Blacks in Boston, um, whereas it was $250,000 for Whites in Boston.
0: What's interesting to me uh, is for us to be recognizing now that we need to understand these inequities and these dynamics within the context of everything in society and and that includes education and is it fair to say we might not have seen a role or a position like this or a recognition of that 20 years ago we might not have understood um the need to address these kinds of challenges within the uh, educational setting
1: i think now what's different um is that we are um coming to terms with it more um as a society um and definitely um, uh, with our work uh, in the Boston Public Schools, our superintendent, Dr. Brenda Caselius she brings that equity lens. And so um, I think that it was very much um, a part of her vision to say, "No, we're going to focus on this. And in order to focus on it and do it the right way, we need to have a high-level uh, position and, and office and division that really focuses on this work in a, in a different way.
0: These problems have been stubborn, um, intractable, and then... All of a sudden, a year ago, we hit the pandemic and it has been noted in many places that that pandemic mm-hmm. sort of took all of these challenges inequities that we face in our society and kind of put them in the microwave um, and intensified mm-hmm. them. And I'm curious whether we've seen some of that in education as well, public education as well.
1: There is a story that I'll never forget of um, you know, a parent uh, telling us that you know, she uh, drove Uber um, and um, and uh, deliver food and her son, there was no one to watch him. And so uh, he had to, uh, on her cell phone, that's how he was on Zoom in the backseat of the car while she was um, uh, uh, working. And so um, these are the the harsh realities that the sort of pandemic uh, illuminated in terms of the, not everybody's the same, not everybody has the same resources and access to resources in our society. Um, And those of us who've been in education for years, we know that. Every major challenge and inequity that we see across our um, uh, the cities, especially as we serve in um, in urban school districts, um, they they converge in the in the schoolhouse daily, um, and so I think the the pandemic um, really really illuminated that uh, that much more.
0: As you've spoken in the past about uh, that the technology that was an especially poignant um, example that you just gave and, and tragic, um, you've pointed out as well that there are other um, challenges that our students face Uh, that I don't want to say they get papered over by being able to go to school every day, but to some degree they get mitigated. You've pointed out that uh, there are nutritional benefits to being able to be in school. There are social benefits, health care, emotional well-being, and uh, all of these things. uh, When we're educating folks, um, young people, uh, over – Over a computer, we're grateful for the fact that we can do that. We know that, but we also know that there are gaps there that we're having to make sure we find another way to fill.
1: I think one of the things, um, you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, especially in some of our our most high needs uh, communities and and schools, you know, um, students uh, and families very much look forward to uh, the meals that are provided uh, through uh, our schools, especially as we we make them tastier. Uh, We we have an initiative in our district. My Way Cafe, where we actually um, are doing a lot uh, to actually create choice for students um, uh, during their during their mealtime. and so um, it, it's something we we continue to provide um, uh, even during the pandemic and setting up stations for families to come and get food. But it it's not the same um, again again access to, to transportation or being able to go out or even feeling like it's safe enough to go out um, is are also remain barriers, and so. Um, there's no substitute for just being able to have young people, um, in school. When you look at also, uh, access to, um, to healthcare and atten- attending to the health needs, um, some of our schools, uh, have, um, school-based, uh, health centers, um, and they provide a, a array of services to young, uh, young people, um, uh, and in many cases connect with, uh. Uh, the pediatricians um, throughout uh, the city of Boston, but it's, it's hard for us to, to be able to, to utilize that resource if we are, if we are um, uh, in a remote environment. Um, we've gone back and there are more students uh, in a hybrid uh, model, um, but in many cases, um, some students have not been able to um, uh, come back uh, hybrid. Um, uh, so that continues to be a challenge.
0: In March of 2020, the Boston schools closed because of the pandemic, and the day after that decision was made, you received a call from the superintendent. What happened after that?
1: So we called together um, a few days later, um, our uh, NAACP Boston branch, um, the um, ACLU uh, local branch, um, the uh, Lawyers Lawyers for Civil Rights uh, Committee, um, the uh, Urban League uh, Boston, um, and a few other organizations, Um, who really sat down and thought through with us the different areas that would be just a a challenge uh, and a concern um, as we were all thinking through um, uncharted territory, something we'd never experienced before. And um, um, one of the recommendations was that, that the superintendent shared with the group is that we were gonna convene this this, um, larger platform um, where anyone could join to give the district feedback um, focused on uh, ensuring that uh, resources that were distributed equitably, um, that we were um, giving the right amount of attention to the groups who needed it most, um, and that we were meeting the needs of students and families during this pandemic. um, And so that there would be more of a human touch point, as much as possible that you could achieve um, considering uh, remote learning and remote uh, meetings uh, uh, during the pandemic. And so that Friday, we started um, a uh, community equity roundtable, and we had 200 folks join. Wow. Um, and so these are some of our largest numbers when you talk about uh, community engagement um, and um, the work of the district. Um, and we continue to see large numbers like that for weeks on. We held the uh, roundtables weekly from that point in March all the way into the summer. Um, and then um, we realized the, how powerful it was because it was an opportunity for folks to um, participate. You didn't have to leave your home um, to participate, give the district uh, feedback, um, hard critique, um, you know, um, and, you know, folks really came and gave a very um, uh, critical and passionate feedback uh, consistently. And we just decided that this needed to be a regular part of what we do as a a school district. Um, And so we've continued to do it uh, every two weeks um, in in our district. Um, And it really serves as a place that we, before we make any major decisions or take any major um, policy uh, to our um, school committee, that um, we bring it to that community equity roundtable for feedback. And so it's been um, really a transformational uh, experience uh, for us as a school district. And it's something that we're also, um, we also at that same time um, started in our schools. And so um, uh, every school uh, and every school leader has a a equity roundtable where they have some community partners and parents um, and members of their school community to try to problem solve some of the major uh, equity challenges given uh, uh, COVID-19. As I continue to talk to parents, um, you know, I continue to hear feedback um, around Uh, process and opportunities to give feedback and have the one-on-one conversation with senior district leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that, you know, for our community equity roundtables, for example, our superintendent is at every one of them. And so for folks to have access to a school superintendent Mm -hmm. at a large urban district in a dynamic city like Boston for 90 minutes uh, weekly or every two weeks um, is unheard of. (laughs) And, um, and, And it's not like the formal school board meeting where you know, she can't technically respond, right? This They can actually have a back and forth conversation, right? Oh, yeah. This idea that there's a dedicated space to talk about issues of equity and inclusion mm. um, at the mm. school level. Um, and that's, that's, that's the agenda, right? Um, and we bring data. Um, and so we can have a conversation based on data and we can also get different feedback from various stakeholders who might be impacted. And I think that centers um, our work to make sure that we are, we have a dedicated space to make sure we are um, consistently focused on meeting uh, the needs of those who've been historically shut out and denied.
0: Some of the success of these meetings is that they were held over Zoom, which makes it easier for parents to participate. So, do you think there are innovations like that that could continue after the pandemic?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we started saying as educators. Um, and our superintendent continues to reinforce, that in some ways we don't want to go back to normal. Um, uh, That um, the technology has really opened up um, just a a number of different avenues for us to really um, change the the nature of the educational experience for young people, especially when we look at um, young people who really might learn better in different ways um, and not in the traditional ways. And so there are some students who, Uh, have done better uh, during the pandemic and with remote learning and having the flexibility of, you know, going online to Google Classroom uh, and learning um, uh, in what we call the sort of asynchronous modules um, and then having the flexibility to check in with their teacher at a different time. Um, And so I think these are the kind of creative solutions um, and resources we will definitely leverage moving forward. And um, we have been looking at, uh, in Boston Public Schools, uh, creating a virtual school um, that would allow for more flexibility um, in um, in this way. Um, and then there's an initiative where some of our partners, um, Ayala Shakora, BUILD, and Kristin McSwing of the Boston Opportunity Agenda um, have come up with uh, an initiative that involves many people. But um, it's called uh, Campus Without Walls. And the idea is that a teacher who is uh, stellar teacher in a particular area of expertise um, can open up their classroom uh, and they can have a teacher from another school have their students join the classroom with the teacher um, and they can co-teach um, and provide the lesson to all of the students at the same time because it's all you know on the online platform um, and I think that things like that are really going to be transformative in terms of uh, how we define uh, public education moving forward.
0: You have an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and a doctorate, all from BC, and yet, Charles, in some ways, that's mm-hmm. the least of the the depth of your involvement with the university. Um, you are a very passionate um, supporter of and participant in uh, the Donovan Urban Teachers Scholars Program. You yourself were um, a, a Donovan scholar. And uh, you have gone on to teach four high school students who themselves went through the program, and today are teachers. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. Start by telling, for those who aren't familiar, what is the um, the Urban Teaching Scholars Program?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the um, Donovan Urban Teaching Scholars Program was founded uh, in the early '90s um, and uh, named after Father Donovan, um, who's a longtime member of the BC uh, community and really meant to um, create it to really be a, a resource to um, prepare teachers to teach in uh, urban uh, classrooms um, in Boston and um, over the years has continued to be a, a an important pipeline for developing uh, um, equity-minded and social justice minded uh, educators um, to go in a classroom to not just teach curriculum but to teach students and to meet the needs of students no matter mm-hmm. Um, how vast they might be, um, and so um, I, you know, was very proud to um, have been a, a Donovan uh, Urban Teaching Scholar, and really after being an undergraduate uh, history major at Boston College, um, and doing some tutoring uh, in some of our schools um, in um, in Boston um, during my time as an undergraduate, um, really felt like this was my calling, um, that my my purpose was to try to um, share and impart uh, some of the knowledge that was provided to me by great educators and to be that caring educator um, that's there um, to not just meet the the academic needs, but the social emotional needs as well. Um, And um, I think teaching is such a rewarding career because some of the uh, most important uh, and lasting relationships and meaningful relationships you'll develop uh, in a profession are with your your former students um, and I um, have many former students that I've kept in uh, contact with over the years, uh, and as they are like I was during my you know early twenties, trying to navigate. Well, what am I going to do, and what's my next step, and you know what's my calling, and what's my purpose in life? All those questions that keep you up late at night, <laughs> earlier on in your life. Um, you know, um, to be able to sort of nudge them in a the direction and say, you know what, I see something in, in you, and I know you care about people. And you might want to consider um, uh, trying out this program and, and going into a career uh, of teaching. And now to be able to see them in classrooms and to have them to call and ask questions, and when they have rough days, to really to really be able to you know give them feedback and push their thinking and, and give them the motivation to go back in there and, and keep going, um, I think is just a, a really rewarding thing. And so I, I really appreciate the work that the um, entire Lynch School of Education team. Um, Dean Stanton Wortham uh, uh, and his team are doing over there um, to make sure that uh, that program is uh, healthy um, and continues to thrive and grow. Um, and uh, each year uh, the cohort becomes um, more diverse. Um, and especially for us in Boston Public Schools, that's um, important for us to make sure that we are, um, you know, our, one of our goals is to make sure that we have a, a workforce and especially teachers in the classroom. Um, who reflect the diversity um, of the students we serve.
0: Charles, you obviously uh, remain a passionate supporter of Boston College. What were your experiences like as a Black man at the Heights?
1: You know, I think for me growing up uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. And, and being able to see um, what for me was uh, great examples of leadership, especially leadership of people of color, whether they were doctors or uh, lawyers or um, you know the elected officials in the city Um, and then uh, having experience I went to um, uh, a Jesuit Catholic High School Gonzaga College High School in Washington DC and and that is where I absolutely fell in love with the Jesuit uh, mission Um, and that's what led me to go to Boston College and um, I had um, an experience at Boston College that I, I wouldn't give up for anything um, and uh, it was, um, for me, um, the formation of my identity um, as, a, as a Black man who understood um, his history and culture. Uh, the Black Studies Program at Boston College was uh, founded in the late 1960s as one of the first created in, in the entire country. Um, And for me during that time, um, I got to have uh, just amazing uh, educators and teachers um, providing me with an education that I felt like I was able and empowered to within uh, the Boston College community um, to try to apply and use real time in the work um, of the Office of Student Development and in terms of the student organizations and activities. Um, And so you know, we, we did a lot of uh, on-campus, uh, you know, activism or community organizing, which folks call it now, um, and especially around our work uh, for um, uh, our Black Studies program, Latin American Studies and Asian Studies, uh, Ethnic Studies overall, um, diversifying the history core. A lot of these things that um, over the last few years, I know there's been some great progress made uh, by the university. Um And again, we were just a part of the larger relay race of students who came before us who were pushing for all of these things. Um, And so I'm so proud and happy that, you know, when I was an undergraduate, uh, you were not allowed to major in uh, Black Studies and African and African Diaspora Studies at Boston College. Now that's possible, Um, and that's because um, people uh, and students... um, Um, continue to advocate for it Um, and now there's more faculty and the university has showed more of a commitment to it uh, as well. It really exemplifies everything we've been talking about here um, in terms of what it, what it means to get to a more equitable and inclusive uh, society. Um, And so I'm I'm very appreciative of Boston college is why I went went back two more times uh, (laughs) to get more degrees Um, and, um, and the work continues. And so not only am I uh, working as a part of the Donovan Urban Teaching Scholars Advisory Board, but also a member of the um, AHANA uh, Leadership Advisory uh, Council, um, Alumni Advisory Council as well. Um, and, um, you know, uh, every, every uh, uh, first year student who comes to Boston College uh, gets a super fan shirt with what a, what a saying on the back of it. And so for the class of 2005, uh, mine was uh, always believe in BC. Uh, and so here I am.
0: Well, Dr. Charles Granson, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: John, thank you so much.
0: Um, I really appreciate being here.